You're listening to the Cannabis Investing Network. Before we begin, a short disclaimer. The full disclaimer follows at the end of this episode. This podcast is a general communication and is being provided for entertainment and information purposes only. It is educational in nature and is not designed to be a recommendation for any specific investment strategy, plan, feature, or other purpose. Please enjoy responsibly. Hello and welcome back to the Cannabis Investing Network podcast. My name is Manish, and today we are joined by a gentleman who's fresh off of his vacation across America in a hot air balloon by a Chinese tourism company. His name is Abby. How's it going, buddy? How's it going? Uh, The balloon, unfortunately, wasn't, you know, it had a little bit of a hard landing, so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but i was able to swim up to shore and i'm back <laughs> he's back baby yeah. much like our portfolios he has yeah. washed up on shore and he's ready for more wow yeah i don't think my portfolio is washed up on shore yet it's still it's still down there <laughs> still it's still falling like the balloon you came in on <laughs> exactly exactly how's it going buddy it's going pretty well man it's uh as you know it's been minus 30 degrees here that's celsius Mm-hmm. Uh, for people who don't know real temperatures, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is, it doesn't matter what language you speak or what metric you use, it is cold. It is yes, sir. freezing cold. Well, it is cold in the streets, but it is hot in the metaphorical sheets because the market has been on fire. <laughs> that is true. Absolutely on fire in January. Yeah. Total reversal. Uh, financial conditions have unquestionably eased. And, um, you know, it's really interesting to see where we go from here. So kick it off today. What we're going to be doing is uh, not quite a prediction episode, but really we're looking at sort of an outlook episode. And we're going to be talking about five key things that we're keeping an eye on in 2023, uh, where they are today, why they're important. And the reason it's not a prediction episode is because really I don't have good insight on where some of these things are going to go. So some of them will be, we'll have some predictions, but uh, a couple of them will really just be, hey, keep an eye on this. This is why it's important. Um, and this is where it's heading and how you can keep track of it, right? But um, I, I think that to start the year, it's probably a little bit of a confusing position for people, Abby, because sentiment finished the year extremely negative in general. Uh, you know, exponentially negative for cannabis. Um, And now, you know, there's this relative period of calm uh, where a little bit of life back in markets, right? People kind of poking their head out and saying, hey, we're getting caught offside here and maybe we need to be, uh, you know, catching up. And and this, you know, we don't want this rally to leave us behind. Um, And especially if you're a professional money manager, we don't want our clients asking, hey, why are we not up in the first month of January when everybody else is up? Yeah, well, you know what? You you raise a funny point or a good a good a good point there for for professional money managers. I was I was talking to a couple, and one of the the feedback <clears throat> that they were getting from their clients was that they were like, "Hey, look, GICs. This is here in Canada. GICs in Canada are paying roughly about four and a half to five percent, mm-hmm. right, for a one year GIC. You know, it varies depending on the bank, blah blah blah. But they were upset that you know." Typically, when these guys buy portfolios, there's like a target rate or whatever, right? And, and this particular portfolio was more of a conservative portfolio, and they try to get 6% a year, year over year. That's that's their goal, right? It's not 6% over the market or whatever. And they were upset. They were saying like, hey, like, why are we paying you guys all this money? 
And our target rate is still 6% when GICs are paying 1%. And they were like, look, our cash balance is a little bit high. And that was about a week and a, a week or so ago. And I had, you know, they, they were calling, they were just saying, hey, like, you know, what are you guys seeing? Are there any more deals? So that kind of gave me an indicate like an indication that, you know, buyers are starting to come back in. And I think you're right. It is driven by the end client calling their PMs and being like, hey guys, like, you know, we need to see some movement. Right. And GIC for Americans is basically just means a guaranteed, like a risk free instrument from your bank. Um, And those used to pay back in the day 1% uh, a year for five years. That was kind of your risk free rate of return. Um, And now, you know, we're up to four and a half, five percent. You know, the one year rate is higher than the uh, three, four, or five year rate. Um, But, you know, that's. That's the struggle, right? People are saying, hey, that's my risk-free rate. My hurdle rate is higher. So on the on the top of the five things to watch, I mean, and I can't overstate the importance of, of this, it's look, it's it's the macro and it's what the Fed is doing, the levers they're pulling on availability of capital. So if we talk about the uh, Fed meeting, which just happened at the beginning of February, uh, you know, it, it was a bit of eye-opening to me because since the end of the year, Financial conditions have eased. So what I mean by that is, look, uh, bonds, the bond rate has come down uh, by about a percentage point. Uh, But importantly, you know, in December, it was spiking up again. So it has come down considerably. And now people are talking about how low can it go, right? So that's a big shift in mentality. Um, And that matters a lot for real estate. And you're already hearing about in the US, you know, 30-year fixed mortgages down to about 6%. From seven percent, so it's giving you know if you're a bull or you're you know you want to be a buyer, it's kind of giving you a reason to say, hey, I can't maybe I shouldn't sit on the sidelines forever, right? Maybe there's an opportunity here. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, you know the you're, you're seeing just across public markets, right? Things have recovered. Uh, we're going to talk about Meta in a little bit, but that was one that I did a bunch of work on and bought. It's doubled since its lows, right? So you're you're definitely seeing um, risk on. Now, it was, I think, in some ways, cautious risk on, and everyone was waiting to see what the Fed would say. And mm-hmm. what I would have thought and what I would have predicted was that they took the opportunity to, uh, you know, repeat that, hey, we're going to keep rates high longer than people think. Um, you know, we're, we still have to feel the effect, the lag effect of all of the um, rate hikes that we've done. And that's what they said, right? However, uh, Jay Powell had a clear opportunity they asked him point blank, what do you think about financial conditions easing? And he sort of let it slide. You know, he said, well, it's tighter than it was a year ago. You know, we'll see. You know, he he was not at all saying, hey, conditions are too loose and we need to tighten them and there's pain to come. So that is completely the opposite of what I would have guessed. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why you had such a pronounced market reaction um, after that Fed meeting. Uh, now, the, the other thing that he brought out, which is new uh, I, I've never heard him say this before. He used the term disinflation like 10 times, right? Mm-hmm. So disinflation, now I had to look this up. Disinflation is not deflation, okay? They sound very similar, but there's a key difference. Disinflation means the rate of inflation is coming down, meaning that you used to have 8% inflation, now you have 5% inflation, okay? That's mm-hmm. disinflation. The rate of change is slowing. Okay. Deflation means you used to have 8% inflation and now prices go down by Mm -hmm. some amount. Right. So now, but when you actually break it down, there has been deflation in certain things. The price of gasoline has come down in the last few months. 
right? Um, the the cost of commodities like like wood or steel or concrete has seen some deflation. So that's all very positive. But I think, you know, people like Kathy Wood literally went out like I think the day after or the day of and gave an interview, and one of the headers was deflation. Right. So people are definitely getting those wires crossed on what is disinflation versus deflation. And and I think that's maybe we're getting way too ahead of ourselves on mission accomplished, inflation's over, you know, parties back on. Um, mm. But that being said, what I took away from all of this was that, you know, froth is back on the menu. There is absolutely going to be a dash for trash and there has been a dash for trash. And the things that were left for dead have recovered the most in the last little bit. Um, and unless, you know, just based on what I'm hearing, this could have some room to run um, unless they step in to really squash this. Yeah, for sure. And then to add to that as well, I mean, that, you, you raised a bunch of good points there, but to add to that as well, um, investor fatigue is sort of coming down now, right? Like okay. Investors are getting more energized. And what I mean by that was, you know, December was a write-off in terms of just like deals getting done or, or work getting done or, or volume in general. I, I felt yeah. like a lot of people took December off. And typically and, people, and, and sorry, a yeah. literal tax write-off for people dumping stocks that were down <laughs> a whole lot. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Right? So, I, much, I, so, much, so much so that hedge fund Steve um, has a strategy where literally every December, he just hunts for stocks that he thinks have been thrown away. Right. He just hunts for tax loss selling, tax loss selling stocks buys a basket of them and then sells them in sort of January, February when they recover 10, 15, 20%. It's a good strategy. And I think this time he, instead of buying a basket, he bought like a truckload. <laughs> it, 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 was, it was brutal. It was brutal. But you know what the crazy thing was? People didn't come back in the, like the first week of January. The first mm-hmm. week of January was just as slow. Mm-hmm. Second week wasn't that much better. It wasn't mm-hmm. until the third week that I really started seeing, you know, like my phone start ringing again. People start emailing me out of offices were sort of gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you couple all that people had deal fatigue, not, not really deal fatigue, but everybody was just sort of skittish and sitting on the sidelines. Yeah. That sort of got alleviated. And then you have this great, I'm, I'm using air quotes here. Great news by Powell, not raising as high as, you know, the market had thought it was going to raise. And then, you know, it went gangbusters. Yeah. Right? And sorry, just, just to talk about that. I, I don't think like nothing really changed with their verbiage around where rates are going. Um, you know, people had very had very much priced in a twenty five bit rate hike, but, but people I think were that, taking a bet on fifties, mm-hmm. right? Like I, I kept hearing that on CNBC. Maybe talked to a few people. Maybe I, I hear you, but all I'm saying is twenty five. I think was mostly baked in. I think the mm-hmm. surprise to the upside is to hear him talk about all this disinflation. Right? It really mm-hmm. felt like he was, you know, the George W. Bush on the carrier with the mission accomplished banner, right? Like be, <laughs> being true. like, we got it. We got it, boys. Like it's, you know, it's disinflation time. It's headed in the right direction. And they ask him like a million questions, right? And one yeah. of the questions was, how do you feel about financial conditions loosening over the last 30 days? And again, I would have bet that his answer is, we need to keep it tight. We don't want the trade to reinflate. We don't want financial conditions to ease too much. Um, but he was he was very demurred. Like, we don't want pixels selling for millions anymore. Okay? Yeah, that's right. Those Rolexes need to come down. Yeah. But, Which but they no, have. He, well, maybe not. Right. Maybe going the other way. But I and so I'm surprised by that, I guess, is my point. And, and the risk very much on the inflation side is that you've done a lot of hard work. You've done a lot of heavy lifting over the last you know eight months or so. Um, are you letting in, in the last 
uh, part of like putting out the fire, are you letting the flames reignite? Right? Are you feeding it a little bit of oxygen when you should be, you know, really suffocating it? Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's TBD. But what it means, you know, I, I had a real estate talk the other day, and I was saying, look, I think that if this period of calm continues on for another couple of weeks, which I could I could see now that you know they've the Fed has kind of given it the green light. Um, I think it's a phenomenal time to try to get deals done. Like if you want to try to sell something or if you're, you know, there's something here for bulls or something here for bears. There's been a bit of a bridge um, or sorry, I should say a, yeah, a gap between the two. And this period of calm could be the bridge for deal making. Or it could be a good rally to sell into. Yeah. But depending on what your side is, right? Like yeah. to me, I'm very much that I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. You know, this lag effect is coming in. Um, and, and I think the, the, uh, financial conditions should be tight, right? I think that's, that's very healthy with all the excess that we've had over the last two years. We need to tighten and wring out some of this excess. Um, but it's not easy because it's start and stop, right? You, you tighten up, then you kind of loosen up again and things get through, right? It goes back and forth. Right. So, so I, I think that, uh, that's the risk here is that, is that they, they risk letting some of their hard work go. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. So, okay. So, so to bring this back to cannabis, one of the things that I've noticed is that even if you go back to the COVID period of 2020, 2020, um, cannabis has been, uh, I think, I think what they call a lagging bull, meaning that everything else kind of gets love first. And then cannabis is one of the last things to get love. Right. And if this period of calm continues, which it looks like it's, you know, so far so good, um, cannabis could start getting some love again. Right. And sure enough, we'll talk about some of these things later. But sure enough, you look at uh, some of the headlines around cannabis as well, and they're starting to, you know, percolate again. Right. People talking about, hey, the Senate's talking about safe banking. Right. Hey, we're looking at, you know, Maryland turning online. So the negativity is kind of, you know, people are maybe getting some negativity fatigue and they're starting to look at those quote unquote green shoots and say, hey, there's some positivity here. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, company specific, um, you are starting to see some rallies forming, you know, maybe for no reason. So talking about Dash for Trash, you know, there's this company BGXX, I think it's bright green. And this is a company that made headlines for like, you know, five minutes back in the day, um, because they had like an MOU from the DEA. So essentially like an LOI from the DEA to grow cannabis. Yeah, it was like last summer, right? Yeah, something like that, right? And it it like, you know, went public and it went like 10x out the hopper yeah, and it was trading $50 a share from like a $2 IPO or whatever it was, right? It was it, crazy. It went parabolic. Yeah, it went parabolic right off the gates and this was at yes. a time when there was it was low volume in the in the mm-hmm. broader market or the broader cannabis market was feeling pressures. Yes, absolutely. So people were like, "Wow, look at this." It was basically like a meme stock, right? Yeah. Um and then it got corrected and it went down to like, you know, a dollar 50 cents, something like that. Well, it rallied like 200 uh, percent. It's part of this dash for trash, but also because company specifics, they released a PR saying, hey, we're doing a private placement at forty dollars a share. Keep in mind, the stock was trading at 50 cents. OK, <laughs> so Jeez. then the stock rallied to like two dollars. Right. Yeah. Or whatever it was. I don't know. I'm, you know, the numbers are not that important. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Yeah. And when you look into the PR, you're kind of like, well, what do you mean you're doing a like who's buying the stock at $40 a share, right? Like what am I missing? So you read it and 
it's a it's a wild wild PR where they talking about how they're gonna use the um, I'm gonna butcher this I think it's I think it's the EB five visa program, um, which is a, essentially like a rich person immigration scheme where you go hey you pay eight hundred grand to help employ to start a business essentially in the U.S. which right. employs at least like eight or ten people and um, you have to invest at least eight hundred grand. And for that, you know, we fast track you to get a green card, right? So um, that's the the scheme. Now, how does it apply to BGXX? I really have no idea because they say, well, people are going to be able to invest in our stock, and then through that private placement, we're going to hire people on their behalf. Like it's some also kind of be one of the test subjects, and yeah. you know, <laughs> one of the guinea pigs. They've got that's right. Them, that's yeah, right. A limb. That's right. We're going to test the new vaccine on them and that's going to yeah. be the whole. But so so I, I don't understand this at all. Um, but they said, hey, we're going to raise up to $500 million, right? So really what it means is that they've off, been authorized to raise up to $500 million. Now, also, to be fair to them, there was like an extensive quote from, I think, the governor of New Mexico talking about where we welcome this company and their investment and da 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 So there was some feeling of legitimacy behind it, but I, I look. I think they timed this PR beautifully because there was very much this risk on mentality again, and um, you know, there's probably some kind of short squeeze that got orchestrated here because of this. Mm-hmm. But it really makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, the the I guess the the argument you can make on his behalf is that if they're actually able to raise a significant amount of money, even if that's you know fifty million dollars, not five hundred million. Um, then that's great for the company, right? And right, and right. trading at you know pennies on the dollar versus the raise is is a positive for investors. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I I really don't understand any of this because I just ask. So does that mean like any company can just orchestrate this scheme and say, hey, buy our stock at twenty times the value, and we'll help you get a visa through this? Like, so it's it's very confusing to me. But yeah. my 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 point is that if this PR had come out um, in Q four. I just don't think you would see anything like the kind of response we're seeing. So when the froth is back, uh, yes, it, it gets applied broadly, but then it gets applied more specifically. So if this continues, watch for some of these companies to start up the PR machine again and you know maybe the promotion machine and start PRing just some of the nonsensical things that we were seeing over the last few years, like bringing new brands out or what, you know, just to get the, the hype going again. Odorless cannabis, you know, popping it off on Twitter. That's that's what it's going to be. But no, you're you're 100 percent right. You know, once once there's a little bit of positive sentiment, then everybody forgets all about the negativity, and then companies do start like it's just it's kind of like um, what's that term? Not search engine optimization, search engine management, the SEM, where companies just put out uh, press releases so that they stay relevant when someone like Google's their stock. Right? It, it's a strategy that IR companies use. Interesting. Um, and you can only have so many, uh, I mean, typically you don't want to start with all the fluff, right? But uh, there's always fluff pieces that kind of come in. Okay, watch for fluff. So, fluff, so look, to wrap yeah. off the first part about macro and risk on, um, that's a trend to watch. Uh, I remain uh, very skeptical against where we are in this macro environment, uh, which because of earnings, which we'll get into next. Uh, but I will, uh, I will post a long form uh, interview that Eric Johnson of Cantor did. Eric has been amazing over the last year on calling, you know, overall market direction. Mm-hmm. And uh, and very simply, his argument is this. He goes, look, 
if you look at where the S&P is trading, it's trading at something like 18 times uh, analyst estimates for 2023 earnings, right? And that is a historical high from a multiple perspective, which doesn't really make sense given where rates are today. And then on top of that, earnings are at risk. So let's talk about that. So if you look at Q4, which we're now starting to see the first earnings come in from big tech and et cetera, uh, earnings are soft. And now they're maybe a little bit below expectations, but they're not crazy negative. Okay. So, so Meta, for example, you know, they went from 27 billion to 32 billion of revenue from Q3 to Q4, but they had predicted that they'd guided the market to that. And the reason is because Q4 is holiday season. So there's a lot more advertising spend, right? Mm -hmm. So customers spend more, um, companies advertise more and, uh, and there's just overall, it's a good spending quarter, right? So for context, they're going from like 32 back down to like 27 in Q1, right? That's their guide. So it just shows you kind of that, that holiday bump that you're getting. Right. So Q4 has been a little bit disappointing, not crazy disappointing, still pretty strong, um, despite the fact that you had all of this holiday earning coming in. But the, the really interesting part to me, Abby, is that the year over year sales numbers for yeah. Apple and Facebook um, are actually negative. Right. So in absolute terms, right, in nominal terms, they're they're earning less on the top line than they were one year ago. Mm-hmm. And remember, these are growth companies. Yeah. So that's very negative, right? And if you think about, uh, you know, Apple is a products company. I mean, they, they yeah. sell, you know, iPhones and iPads, and then they have an ecosystem on top of that. Facebook, on the other hand, is an advertising company, right? It yeah. has all these platforms and generates ad dollars. So I think that they're actually very instructive, um, it, especially at Google as well. If you, if you layer, if you look at these, because Apple's very representative of like large, stable CPG consumer-driven uh, products company, whereas yeah. you know Google and Microsoft, sorry, Google and and Facebook, uh, give you a really good sense of how the B two B economy is doing, right? How the advertising economy is doing, which ultimately is driven by B two C because the the advertisers are selling to consumers at the end of the day, right? Yeah, yeah. So Q four, pretty good, lots of holiday spending, but still disappointing. So now going back to Eric Johnson's argument, he's like, look, you're going to start to see earnings estimates come down because everyone's predicting that you're going to get some bump over 2022. Well, what if earnings start to come the other way are flat or negative, right? And what if you start applying a more traditional multiple than 18 times? As you work this out, you start getting an S&P that's not, that's closer to 3,000 than it is to 4,000, right? Said another way, from the multiple perspective, people just have not repriced what they feel is an appropriate yield on equities. And certainly we've seen that in commercial real estate where there has been some price adjustment from the craziness of 2021, but not a lot of price adjustment, right? Maybe 5 or 10%, which is not a huge recalibration. So that has yet to happen. And that's something that I think is coming across all sectors. Did he, did he give what he thought was an appropriate multiple? Because like I know 18 is a little high, but like the market has traded around 16, 17 times for quite some time. 
Yeah. So he was saying, look, if you use sort of 15 to 16, which is a, I think that's more, a more historic multiple. Yeah. Now, look, you can make arguments too that, hey, there's more money than ever. And, you know, the real estate argument is that costs are super high. So it's it's replacement cost has gone up. So so it's not to say there's only one argument, right? There's there's two sides to every debate here. Yeah. Um, but that was his point that if you if you write earnings down to like 200 and you apply 15 to 16 times, you know, you get to just over 3,000 3, on the S&P, right? right? So that's that was his argument is that there's a lot of downside risk here. Um, and yet the upside has been priced to perfection, as we would say, right? Not to say it can't keep going in the short term, um, but that remains my thesis. And what I'm doing is I'm taking the puts that I had on the S&P that were expiring, rolling them over, essentially selling them, um, and then rebuying puts that have longer dates, right? So looking out to June and September now. Um, and and kind of planning accordingly. Uh, but that's going to be the number two thing to watch as we go through the year is where are the earnings? Because the earnings will tell you a lot about, you know, not only how we value things, but how's the consumer doing, right? Is the consumer slowing down a little bit? Um, is the consumer being more price sensitive, right? And certainly we felt that a lot in the last year when it comes to cannabis, mm-hmm. not so much some of the other parts of the economy. But if you think again, about 2020 and 2021 and even 2022, people had a lot of money, right? They were yeah. flush with cash. They were given cash. Uh, at, you know, earlier on, they couldn't spend it. Now they can spend it, you know, everywhere. Um, and when you go out, when, you, when you're out and about, you know, consumer demand is strong. The consumer has not cracked yet, right? And so companies have not had mass layoffs of regular people, real workers, um, and that means the earnings are still pretty good, but will that change going forward this year? How will that affect how we look at the market and how will that affect cannabis companies? These are all questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and I agree with you. I, I think that in terms of blue collar, like uh, everyday, like regular people layoffs, that hasn't really happened, but we have, we have started seeing layoffs and they have been made uh, pretty public, right? Like even some, some of the banks here have laid off, not to the extent of like the tech companies or whatnot, but that will have a lag and that will kind of come down. But you know, you're also you're also spot on in terms of the demand, like demand hasn't been destroyed, right? The consumer, irrespective of who you are, as you know, I know if you were in the capital markets or if you watch stocks last year, you got absolutely pummeled. But totally. if you weren't, you know, pe- people don't really know how bad the stock market was. I'm sure, you know, when you were home for the holidays with with your family, anybody who wasn't really in the markets didn't know the pain that, you know, we were feeling. And the reason why the Christmas presents were late. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so yeah, to that point, I mean, going back to my theory from a couple months ago, there's interplay between labor, what I call real jobs. So, you know, things that you have to go do in person, um, which there's a huge shortage of, and the jobs report is telling us is still really tight. So that, so labor you know, the general public, they don't own stocks, right? They own housing is the main asset that they own. Well, housing has stayed very resilient. Yeah, there's been some some cooling off off the peak, which is which is healthy. Uh, but there has not been a giant price correction in housing across North America. So you go you go labor, housing and consumer spending, right? The the laborers are the homeowners and they are the consumer. So those are all connected. And those three things have not cracked. In fact, they look like they're pretty strong and maybe even strengthening in some cases. So wages are strong, still going up, less so than before. So that's the disinflation portion. That's good, um, but still super tight. 
So housing prices haven't really come off. There has not been a lot of distress in housing. Sales have slowed, right? So if you're a realtor, your income has fallen a lot. And then last point is consumer spending has stayed really strong. Starting yeah. to see the first cracks of that in Q4, which is surprising. But again, strong on an absolute basis, maybe a little bit weak on an on a ex- expectations basis uh, mm-hmm. because everyone is projecting some growth over Q4 of um, 2021, right? But to go back to cannabis, if you think about the mistake that we made in 2020 and 2021, it was that we were using very high multiples, um, although they looked low on a relative basis, but they were high multiples on inflated earnings. And mm-hmm. basically the idea that, that hey, these earnings were not sustainable. These earnings were from a point in time when consumers had a lot of money and there wasn't enough supply in these key markets that were booming, right? So mm-hmm. we used too high of a multiple on too high of earnings. Well, when you start cutting those back, you can start going down a lot very quickly. When yeah. you're playing with the earnings and the multiple, you can Which cut your value. Of course, right? We, yeah. You can cut your value in half very quickly. Mm-hmm. So now apply that to you know the broader market. The earnings of Apple in 2021 may have been the peak because consumers had that much money to spend. They hadn't felt the inflationary pressures yet on their bottom line. And in fact, inflation was helping them on their top line where they, were, they could charge more for products, right? Yeah. For, for Apple, I don't know. I mean, obviously, I don't... I don't follow the company that closely to really make too much of a comment, but one one asterisk I'd always put um, is that it could have been supply chain issues. It could have been just getting products on on time. And the reason I say that is because I upgraded my phone last year to the newest one, and it took like they didn't have it in stock when I went there, and I had to go there three. I had to go there. I had to go back twice to get it. Right. So interesting. So I mean, like that's. But again, I only I only went to Apple and Costco. Like I didn't go to like Future Shop or Best Buy or anywhere else. I only okay, went to those two places. But but still, like that shows that you know both those places were out of stock on that model. Yeah, look, fair enough. And you're making a good point here. There's idiosyncrasies with each company and supply chain and all that, right? But all what I'm getting to is that what overall, if, I get it. Yeah, like like for a lot of these companies, whether they're B two B or B two C. It's possible that their earnings peaked in 2021. Now, look, they're huge companies with big moats, very well run. Like they're they're going to figure this out, right? I'm not saying it's doom mm-hmm. and gloom. All I'm saying is, even if you cut their earnings back, say 10 percent, 15 percent, and then you start, you know, applying a lower multiple on it, right? You start getting to uh, much lower numbers pretty quickly, right? Like if you cut mm-hmm. earnings back 10 percent and you cut the multiple back 20 percent. Right, you start getting to something like seventy percent of your original value, right? So, just right. to point out that when you start playing with these numbers, you can have a lot of pain. It certainly doesn't feel that way, right? In any of these markets, it's not <laughs> feeling like there's a price price readjustment here. So, so um, earnings are going to be really key. Now, if you think about cannabis, I'm really curious to see how it plays out because, at the end of the day, a lot of markets um, have had huge price compression. Um, are they starting to find bottom yet or is this an ongoing saga? So in California, they're talking about, hey, we might have hit bottom on the prices and we're going up. Not crazy up, but we're, we're, we've at least found some kind of bottom, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we look at markets like Mass, Pennsylvania, Florida. Has that happened, right? We're hearing some people say in certain markets that, hey, we're actually starting to do a little bit better now. We're hearing some people say, hey, it's actually getting worse, right? So that's yeah. the idiosyncratic part about 
company to company, your operation, your footprint, your flower, your verticality, that's going to determine sort of cannabis earnings for Q4, Q1 and onwards, right? Mm-hmm. But the the bigger one will also just be your markets. You know, if you're if you are in some of the markets that turn over, you know, you're in Connecticut, you're going to get a little bit of a tailwind, you know, into 23 from that, right? Mm-hmm. So that I think is going to be a, a really key point to watch. When does the discussion change from, um, hey, the Fed's not raising rates anymore, which we're basically there. Um, when does that change to, hey, how long are they going to keep the rates here, right? How long are we going to feel this financial pain um, right. if conditions start tightening again? And does that start to impact consumer spending? If it does, then companies start doing real layoffs, right, of, mm-hmm. of real jobs, not, you know, not middle managers and white collar tech employees. I mean, real people getting laid off. If that happens, then consumer spending really takes a hit, right? And right. it becomes sort of a self-fulfilling cycle. Then I think you'll see distress or, or some distress in the housing market and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. But maybe it doesn't happen, right? Maybe they really threaded the needle and it's all good. And, you know, this we just sort of continue sideways for years and years and years. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Last point on that. You know, if you look at Meta, Facebook, that's a company that, you know, I bought some, um, I actually did some work with with a bunch of, of our friends kind of digging into it, including uh, Scott Grossman, who joined us last week on the pod. And, you know, I took a stab at it, did did okay, sold it. You know, it's, it's like doubled, would have been a, a giant win if I had kept it. But I actually think that one is completely overdone. I think it was overdone on the negative, right? I think that it got sold off too much. Um, it was, you know, doing pretty well on cash flow, but it it, it, the problem is, as the revenue line came in and the expenses line was too high, their cash flow from operations shrunk to almost nothing for Q3, right? Mm-hmm. It expanded out again to $5 billion for Q4, but they had all that extra holiday income, right? So I think people are actually now getting too optimistic on it because they have a, you know, their cash flow is not what it used to be, right? So maybe they can do you know, something like 40 bill of cash flow um, next year. Uh, but the problem is they're going to spend like 30, 35 bill on CapEx, right? Mm-hmm. So it's going to be overall cash flow negative um, for next year or, or close to cash flow negative. Um, and of the of the income they make, you know, they just announced a $40 billion stock buyback. Now, I don't think they'll actually spend $40 billion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they'll I think they'll be pretty conservative with how much they spend. But again, I think the market is just really getting ahead of itself. Uh, and and yeah, it was overdone on the way down. And now I think it's getting overdone on the way up. Um, so just an interesting example of something that's had a huge recovery. Uh, but part of it is earnings driven and people seeing them cut expenses and listen to the street. Part mm-hmm. of it, I think, is just showing you how much sentiment has shifted uh, literally in three months. Yeah, no, fa- Facebook or Meta, that's that, that, that's an interesting one. We were talking about it right before, right? When Jim Cramer went online and cried and bawled his eyes out basically of like how he got it wrong. And then I was joking to you. I was like, oh, was that your buy signal? And you're like, yeah, it kind of was. It, it was. And you remember I posted the link at the time when he was like, he like the one yeah. the one I posted was he was frothing at the mouth, like screaming mad about, about how bad tech was doing. And the next day he went on CNBC and cried. Yeah. And like- yeah. And I mean, the, the it's easy to make fun of him, right? But it's just, it's it's just funny because to me, what that signaled was that hey, there's something happening here with the tech industry. It's 
a lot of people over the last 10 years called themselves growth investors, but truly they were momentum investors. Mm-hmm. And and listen, that worked. I, I'm not knocking it. I'm saying it had a negative connotation, but the reality is people do what works. And what worked really well was, hey, what's hot? You know, having a good nose for what's going to catch fire um, and getting in early and then getting out, right? Yeah. And that worked exceptionally well. And with tech, what people learned was, hey, just never get out. Keep keep getting, <laughs> you know, get more and more of those big tech names. They're only going up. And right. they kept posting really strong growth. Um, but now that's going the other way. And so now they have to figure out how to get their costs under control and become mm-hmm. more value stocks, right? That are that are based on cash flow generation and returning capital to shareholders. Mm-hmm. Well, that's sort of where cannabis is, right? I mean, in, in the absence of having new markets turn online, now you're having to control your costs. You're having to um, figure out a way to generate actual cash flow. And if you look at companies like Trulieve and Cureleaf, they've actually guided to 2023 having a good free cash flow. Mm-hmm. Can they do it? Will it actually happen? That is what's going to play itself out in the earnings, right? I'm skeptical, but I think that some of the things you're seeing, like Cureleaf shuttering operations in certain states, um, you know, you're seeing an unconfirmed report of Air firing like 300 people mm-hmm. um, from their from their company. Now, some of those are real jobs, by the way. They're firing cultivators yeah. and stuff like that. That makes, you know, it's not nice, but it makes a lot of sense in the context of the context of like mass, where they probably have way too much cultivation, right? They went too big on the grow, like everyone did, and now they're having to rationalize it and shut down parts of grows. Right. So, hey, why not cut some of this the this employment costs? Our operating margin is too high and the revenue is not going to get there. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. let's tighten our belt. Um, this is an important part of the process, right? And and we're just we're just seeing the start of that. So that will be really the key key to watch going into and throughout 2023. Yeah, for a lot for a lot of the cannabis companies, I I agree with you. What are, what are your thoughts on new markets opening up? Like, no, I'm not talking about um, the the states. I'm just talking about international markets. Like, do you think that's going to play a factor at all? Yeah, let's see. I mean, and that's probably, you know, later on, we're talking about big legislative moves. That could be interesting because as new markets open, you know, like Germany um, and and Germany, by the way, reiterated saying, no, 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 we're going to figure this out in 2023. I remain skeptical, Um, but it's good. It gives you something to look forward to. You know, these these uh, progress in other parts of the world, I think, is good for America. Uh, It puts more pressure on them to do something. Right. And. And so I think all of that's positive. I just will believe it when I see it. Right, right. Makes Let, sense. Let's, let's switch gears. Let's talk about for cannabis. The number three thing to watch for 2023, new programs launching. So meaning that this is programs that actually flip from being medical to being rec, um, or I guess from being zero to being medical. But, but really mm-hmm. med to rec is the big one. So uh, I mean, the one that's already going, right? Missouri, um, going rec right away, you know, typically... Uh, the red states have have just been a lot more streamlined and getting going than the blue states. There's not a lot of MSO exposure here. Um, there's some companies who have figured out a way to have 15 stores instead of five. Uh, I don't I don't fully understand how. Uh, there's some kind of restriction against public companies owning assets here or something, but there's a workaround. I, I again I don't understand. This one's going to be interesting for a couple of reasons. One, it's a it's a you know mostly red state going. Um, going wreck. So that's interesting. Number two, what's going to happen with prices? So Missouri is a very fragmented market. Abby, I know you know Missouri very well. And 
uh, prices had come down very quickly and the market had gotten pretty sophisticated pretty quickly. And Mm -hmm. in comparison to nearby Illinois, um, the Missouri prices were a lot cheaper very quickly. Um, And that's partially because it was such a fragmented market. So that'll be the first thing to watch is what happens to prices now that it goes wreck. This is something that I was waiting for for a long time. Um, Unfortunately, I don't have as much exposure to Missouri as I would have liked, but um, I really think the pricing that you saw in Missouri on the medical side was outrageous, right? At one point, it was like $8,000 a pound retail, right? Sure. Um, Which is crazy. It was $4,000 a pound wholesale. And this was like sub 20% THC, um, just average weed, not, not really even high quality. But that quickly compressed. That like Those prices were only there, I'd say early on when the program first launched, but after like six or seven months into the program, you already started seeing prices come down. I really think you've got to price out Missouri at like the same thing that you would price out, I don't know, Illinois or even Florida. Like, I, I don't know. I, I really think you got to bring Missouri down to like 2,500 a pound wholesale at max. Right. Um, and we just came up with that when, when, when we were working there for, for quite some time, but in terms of what's going to happen in for rec, you know, if we, we've seen this playbook play out before you go wreck, your valuations double. There's a lot of people who are holding on licenses, assets that are going to try to sell. I don't know what the buyer situation right now is in Missouri. So yep. um, if you're talking about what's going to happen in wreck in terms of valuation, you know, I think there'll be a slight pop and then they'll kind of correct and kind of play out again. Missouri had weird, uh, if you recall, weird legislations in terms of like grow caps, which they were going to get rid of, uh, but they weren't really going to get rid of them. Um, there was a lot of dispensaries that was available for the number of people. So, you know, I think the consumer at the end of the day is going to benefit um, mm-hmm. and you're going to see a lot of competition out there. Uh, and there was a lot of brands that were trying to get into Missouri. And, and and like you said, to your point, it got sophisticated really quickly. Yeah. And I, I think what will be interesting is that we know the prices will go up with REC, but how much will they go up and how long will they stay there? Uh, yeah, I don't I like I really don't. Th- if you're going to model it out, I don't think you you inflate the prices. Because they were already pretty high. Well, at the beginning, right? Then they they compressed very quickly. So what I'm saying yeah. is on the rec side, they will go up again. I mean, they will, right? People are literally driving from St. Louis to Southern Illinois to buy from, you know, Jushi and Ascend um, right. at, you know, $50 an eighth, right? At plus the tax. Let's not forget about that. I mean, Illinois tax can be- Yeah, 25. Missouri has better tax, yeah. Oh, yeah. Missouri tax, I think is like 6% or something and maybe another couple points for, for cannabis. But- you're, you're maybe talking about a tax that's under 10% versus a tax that could be something like 30%. Right? Yeah. In Illinois, it's a wacky uh, tiering structure. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's a huge delta. So that to me are the two things to watch. What will happen to prices? How quickly will they compress? Secondly, what's going to happen to Southern Illinois sales? Because that um, Southern Illinois region uh, and and the companies that are the most exposed to that are Ascend. You know they've got two great stores down there, um, and then uh, Jushi. Jushi has two strong stores down there as well, right? Mm-hmm. So they have the most to lose. Um, I own a bunch of Ascend. I don't own, own any Jushi. Now Ascend has you know a more diversified base. They've got New Jersey going for them. They're going to you know open two more stores in Illinois <clears throat> since they're only at eight. So you know we'll see, right? But that to me is going to be the interesting part of Missouri. Uh, you know, I don't think you're going to see anybody do significant M&A in Missouri, especially until the prices come down. And if they do, yeah. it'll be something like that, you know, people who have figured out how to do 15 stores, right? Who figure out how to get some kind of scale. Um, so, yeah. so that's going to be interesting. The, the other one, program, sorry, go ahead. 
Oh, okay. I was just going to say one real quick thing about Missouri. I know when, when a lot of people look at Missouri, and I was guilty of this as well, you look at Kansas City and you look at St. Louis, right? But there's one part, Ozarks, which obviously is a very popular show on Netflix. Um, it is massive. <laughs> like like Ozark, It's if you've never been down there, it's kind of like going to Atlantic City or um, or like, like, like Lake Michigan. It's a beautiful area. It draws in a lot of tourism and it draws in a lot of tourism from neighboring states. Um, and you can charge a premium out there, right? So if you're looking at getting Missouri, try to see if you can find somebody who has a, a, a dispensary down in near the Ozarks. Shout out to the Ozarks. There you go. So, uh, so switching gears, Maryland, um, and uh, Hirsch has actually been doing a great job of keeping me updated via email and, and text on this one. But Maryland lawmakers dropped their bill. Uh, so if you remember, they uh, passed the ballot, a recreational measure. It's supposed to start by July 1st, but the lawmakers have to make the rules. Um, so we've seen that, you know, happen, get delayed a bunch of times. You know, New Jersey was was famously delayed by like, I think, eight months or something from from when they were supposed to do it. So so look, the preliminary bill is very interesting. So the Congress um, adjourns in mid-April. So they only have two and a half months. <laughs> You're going to end up around that that 420 date again, actually. Uh, so they've got, you know, February, March and part of April to pass something. The way the bill looks right now is basically that you could have up to, there'd be license caps of up to 300 dispensaries, 100 processors, and 75 grows. So let's forget about processing for a second. 300 dispensaries, 75 grows. Today you have 100 dispensaries and 20 grows. So you're basically tripling um, the current license caps. Mm -hmm. The good news is the 100 medical um, operators or the hundred medical dispensaries and, and the growers could flip over to rec, right? So they're, they're not getting boxed out. They just have to pay a fee. So, uh, oh, sorry. Also there's for the micro licenses, there's going to be another 200 dispensaries. So you're looking at a total license cap of 500 dispensaries for a relatively small state. I mean, Maryland's about half the size of Illinois. So it's six people versus 12, six, six million people versus 12 million. So if you if you sort of map out a similar size market that Illinois has, you're going to get a value of uh, of kind of a mature ish market value mm-hmm. of something like one to one point two billion dollars. Now that might, maybe that's conservative. Um, that's and maybe, a pretty good number though. One point two billion dollar market. That's a that's a no market to gawk at, right? Yeah, no, it's, it's good. I mean, again, so here's the math though, right? If you're if you have um, if you have a hundred dispensaries today. And the market, let's say today, is probably around 400 million, you know, something like that. Dispensers are doing on average 4 million a dispo, right? Mm-hmm. So let's say that triples. Okay. So in the early stages, you could have dispensers doing like 8 to $12 million per dispensary, right? Um, that'll be really great. But then you'll open up another 200 dispensaries. So then you're splitting that. You know, you're, you're splitting 1.2 bill amongst 300. You're back to like maybe 4 million a dispensary. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then then you layer in the 200 micro. Right. Um, and let's say that expands the um, TAM and so more people can buy. So now you're like, you know, one point five to two billion of sales, but you're splitting it amongst 500 dispensaries. So you're back to the three to four million a dispo. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, Illinois has actually had pretty strong prices even now, like three years later. So Maryland, you know, will it compress faster? Who knows? Right. If it compresses faster, well, you know, those sales numbers come down pretty quickly, too. Mm-hmm. Right. So we'll see. Now, um, I think what this tells me is that in the short term, 
if this bill gets passed, Maryland will be a great tailwind for the industry. Mm-hmm. It will be sort of the next New Jersey uh, for some period of time. So the back half of 23 and probably most of 24, Maryland's a huge tailwind. Mm-hmm. You know, companies are limited. You know, they've got four four stores in a grow there. Um, so it's it's but it's it's very good for the industry because everybody's there, right? Cura, Truly, Verano, GTI, um, Cresco's a bit limited, but with Columbia Care, they're all right. So everybody's going to do well in Maryland if this passes. So that's good. One of the negatives I haven't heard anyone talk about is the fees. So when you look at the fees, the fees um, are per license. And they're based on the revenue the license generated in the last 12 months, I believe. So what that means is that if you look at it, um, highly productive stores, you could be talking about a $2 million fee to convert from med direct. So Holy let's assume, yeah, let's assume you have a, a phenomenal Remember, the, the average is like 4 million a dispensary. Let's assume mm-hmm. you're killing it. You have $10 million dispensaries, right? And you're, you're, so your grow is also killing it. You're paying $2 million a license to convert, right? So forget processing for a second. You pay 8 million for your dispensaries and another two for your grow. You're paying $10 million in cash to convert your full operation to rec. That's a lot of dough. Mm-hmm. And if you think about the value you're going to derive out of it, like we just mapped out, long term, you're not you're probably not going to generate a lot of um, EBITDA and real cash flow once all these dispensaries open. So it's really just that initial maybe one or two year period that you're actually going to make money on this, right? So using that example, I mean, if you if you can generate from your footprint you know, let's, let's pick a, a really high number, like, um, you know, 60 million, um, of top line. Um, and you make, let's say, you know, 40% EBITDA margins, you're making like 25 million of EBITDA. You're giving up, you know, maybe 15 million just to taxes and two ADE. Um, you know, you're lucky if you generate 10 million of actual cash flow on your 10 million cash fee that you put in. Mm-hmm. Right. And when that EBITDA normalizes down from, you know, 40 to 30 to 25, that basically disappears. So I just want to point out this is actually going to be very good for the industry, but um, you're sort of trading cash for cash flow. Mm-hmm. And over time, that's going to normalize. So it's actually not, it, it's going to be interesting to see. It, it, how it kind, of seems, it ahead, kind of seems punitive for the people who are performing well, you know, where actually it is. It's, I mean, look, it's definitely punitive, but it's it's sort of pay to play. It's like, look, if you're doing well, um, then you're going to do well in the rec market. So you're going to yeah. pay for that. Right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, now, you have, you have no choice, right? You have no choice. You do yes. have to convert to rec. Right. You have, you have no choice. What else are you going to do? Now, one other thing on that is uh, Ascend recently signed a deal with uh, um, with Devi's. Uh, I think it's called Nature's Medicine or Nature's Medicinal. Four stores, seventeen million uh, cash in stock, one times trailing revenue. I mean, look in hindsight, that seems like a great deal. I mean, at the time, it seemed like a great deal. So, uh, another good deal on a sense part. You know, they have to have to close it, and you know all that. But uh, but seems really cheap. So I don't know if that's just a sign of the times, or I don't know what I'm missing in that deal. Um, but but very positive for them, I think. Yeah. So those. Those two markets are going to be really interesting to watch for different reasons. Kind of coming uh, uh, coming to the next one here, talking about legislative moves at the state level for new programs. So a bit self-explanatory, but I just want to point out what I think are some of the most interesting ones. Um, Florida 
has cleared the first hurdle. They've submitted the ballot question to the Supreme Court. Super, super important. Glad to get it done early. Um, We're going to see now what the Supreme Court says. Do they try to obfuscate the issue and do they try to block this, Um, even though they've been very careful about single subjectivity? Um, So to me, I start getting interested in the um, 2024 Florida ballot initiative after they clear the Supreme Court court hurdle. Um, And I'm not sure how long it takes. I think it'll be later this year towards the back half of the year that we'll find out, uh, but we'll see, right? And if, if they kibosh it here, um, then, you know, essentially it's it's dead for another four years. Mm-hmm. So here's hoping. One thing I want to, here's hoping they don't kibosh it. Uh, one thing I want to point out is that they spent $20 million to get about 200,000 signatures. They need about 900,000. So does that mean they're going to have to spend 80 to 90 million dollars in order to do this? And I don't know the answer by the way. It could be that there's a lot of startup costs in that 20 million. It could be that there's yeah. you know campaign contributions in there. I don't know. I don't know what goes into that 20 million. But if you just look at it at face value, you go that is a gigantic amount of money. And I don't know where you would get 80 million dollars from, right? I mean, you know, getting 20 out of truly was painful enough. Right. And, and yeah. it, it hurt them. So if that's the actual number and maybe, you know, there's obviously cost efficiencies at a certain point, but if that's the actual number, like it is a disgusting amount of money that has to get figured out in order to get this done. Yeah. And, and 20 million, dude, that's a lot. Like I didn't think it was that much at all. And they for spent 200,000. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. For 200,000 that's, that's outrageous. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. No, no question. So, so this is something really critical to watch. Florida is such an important state to the cannabis industry. Getting Florida on the ballot alone, I think, would be a shot in the arm in terms of optimism. Now, remember, they have to clear 60% uh, on the actual ballot initiative. So that's why, again, I hesitate, right? But um, this is a first critical juncture, juncture, first big hurdle to cross. Let's see if they do it. And, and look, congrats yeah. to them on doing it so quickly. Going to Pennsylvania. So Pennsylvania is probably the number two state uh, behind Florida that would, would be a tailwind for the industry. Extremely consolidated state. Prices are falling, but would be a phenomenal rec state. One of the things that we pointed out was that, hey, in PA, the Democrats won the House for the first time in like over a decade. So I didn't know this. They won the House by a single seat. It was like 103 to 102 or something. Um, so, so we said, look, now they have a democratic governor, democratic house, Republican Senate, right? So that's a very good formula for making a lot of noise and saying, we want to legalize cannabis, but these guys won't let us. Well, a little curveball here. So they were, they had, they had the majority by one seat. Um, well, two of their representatives got promoted and those seats need to be basically reelected mm-hmm. and another representative died in the house. So this is really crazy in PA right now, the Democrats won quote unquote in theory, but they only won by one vote and they've lost three of the representatives. So the Republicans are saying, Hey, we're actually in charge because we have more, more seats. Con- we have more, more seats right now, you know, more active yeah. seats essentially. So on February 7th, which is, I guess after this is, or the day this is coming out um, or no, after this is coming out the day, uh, the day before, yeah, today is Feb 5th. Um, 
they're going to have the the by-election. So if they can win and they have to win all three seats again, they are democratically held seats, but they have to win them all in these runoff elections. Um, if they win these, then they can theoretically get back to, uh, you know, trying trying to get some legislation done. If mm-hmm. they don't get these, then that sucks. And basically, they there, there's very little chance of seeing any cannabis legislation move forward in PA. Um, so that'll be interesting to watch. Which will be pretty disappointing if that doesn't happen. Totally. I mean, PA represents a huge amount of opportunity. And look, all around PA, you know, New Jersey just went wreck, right? So yeah. you think there's more pressure on, on PA. Yeah. Um, yeah. Lastly, Texas. So 40 million person state, terribly restrictive program. Um, I think Delta 8 is eating THC's lunch in in Texas right now. Uh, suddenly, out of the blue in January, the I think it's the DHS, Department of Health Services, um, opened up the licensing applications. Right. So Texas has had three licenses for, you know, forever, basically. And suddenly they're opening them up and saying, hey, any, anyone can apply. Um, the interesting part is they're not going to decide on actually issuing the licenses until after the legislative period is over. So in Texas, the legislative period is, get this, only 60 days long. And it only happens once every two years. So the last session was in 2021. Mm-hmm. And um, that was one where it looked like we were going to get the program to expand and have chronic pain and have 5% THC. Well, at the last minute, they took out chronic pain and they t- changed 5% to 1% THC. So we got a little bit of, of loosening, but not a whole lot. Well, yeah. now um, I think they're anticipating that it might change. And if it changes, we're going to have new licenses. Well, really, the, the program cannot support even three licenses right now. doesn't make any sense because of how tight it is. Yeah. So, so this could be a huge change, right? Positively or negatively. If they open up the program and introduce, you know, allow chronic pain or something, then the program could explode. If they do not do that and they issue new licenses, the three companies, there's one private company, uh, I think it's Texas OG, and then there's Consortium and Certera who have Texas licenses. Those licenses, in my opinion, are now hugely devalued. Um, if like Nobody's going to buy that license. Nobody's going to do a deal with those companies, uh, at least until there's clarity on whether licenses will be issued. Right. So, yeah. go ahead. Sorry, go, no, no, I, I was just going to say, t- t- Texas to me is a, is a very interesting one, right? Like it's um, it's... It's an insane state. It's massive, but like, man, I, I, I feel like they're going to botch this whole thing in terms well, we'll of legalization see. and everything. Yeah, look, we'll see, right? I mean, there's it's a very deeply Republican state, but at the same time, I mean, attitudes towards cannabis are, are changing. There's yeah. definitely, you know, pushes um, in the House and Senate to make it happen, you know, to expand the program even, right? It's not even, mm-hmm. they're not even saying we're going to offer flour. They're saying, look, just give us, you know, 5% THC edibles, right? Something like that. So, so who knows? All I'm saying is keep an eye on it. It'll be, you know, it's going to come and go pretty quickly and we'll see what happens. And uh, it could be really good for Consortium. It could be really bad for Consortium, right? So we'll see how it plays out. Mm-hmm. Last thing to watch, the big picture federal legislative moves. So the obvious one is safe banking. Um, you know, I said at the start of the year that, hey, I think people are pricing in a 0% chance of safe banking where they were too optimistic before, they're probably too negative now. You know, I don't think there's a 0% chance of safe banking. I think there's a non-0% chance of safe banking. Um, what does that look like? 
I don't know. But all I'm saying is keep an eye on it, right? When things get priced at zero and then they go up to 20%, that's a big change, right? So that's something to keep an eye on. I think this combination, this this holy trinity of safe, uh, safe plus hope and the Graham Act, I think is actually a nice little combination, right? Can it actually get done? Will it actually get done? We'll see. But yeah, I think I mean, that's... at this point, you sound like we we sound like broken records, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, all I'll say is that when people are getting all excited on the way up, we said, "Look, let's see." Yeah, and now on the way down, when people are getting too depressed, it's like, "Let's see," right? Um, and and this week was the first week I saw people start to get a little bit excited again about some of that news. Right now, again, I go back to that's the context of the froth and the broader market and optimism of stuff getting priced in again. Right. Right. One thing that I think is being talked about a little, but actually could be a huge impact for cannabis is the 2023 farm bill. So the 2018 farm bill at a left field, nobody expecting suddenly um, hemp production and CBD derived from hemp gets legalized completely out of left field, at least, you know, from my perspective. So apparently this farm bill gets re-updated every five years. So it doesn't have to, but it's expected to pass in 2023. Mm -hmm. What's going to be in this farm bill, right? Clearly Delta 8 THC was a loophole, right? It was, they were not meaning um, that you could derive THC from CBD by chemically altering it. And whenever they've challenged in court, judges have said, look, it doesn't matter if you intended to do this or not. Um, This is legal because it is derived. It follows the farm bill. So if you want to change this, Congress has to change it. Well, I think it was, what did I first mention D8 to people? Probably the summer of 2021, because I was in Houston for my sister's wedding. And that's when I went to go check out what is this, you know, CBD store, Delta 8, you know, went to check it out. And I was like, man, this stuff is real and it's everywhere and it works. Mm-hmm. And and as a consumer, I hope they keep the Delta 8 loophole around because when I go to Florida, the first thing I do is I go to a D8 store, right? But what's happened and where I think that the industry got too cute was that Delta 8 turned into Delta 9 and Delta 10, right? So these these um, the innovation didn't stop at Delta 8 THC, right? They kept going. Mm-hmm. So now they've got into THCO and they've gone into something called HHC. And the lady at the store tells me HHC is 30 times stronger than Delta 9. Now, I don't know if that's true. Uh, if I if we assume that it's hyperbole and it's only three times as strong as Delta 9. It's still that a significant is, improvement. Improvement? No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't <laughs> say that. I would say it's way too strong. I mean, THC yeah. in general... Delta 9 THC, I mean, they're working on this like the cure for cancer, right? I mean, every year they're coming out with some crazy new way to get way, way more, you know, more and more high. They're probably Mm -hmm. overdoing it. HHC, I mean, they're they're taking this way too far, right? And there's no regulation on packaging. You know, um, you can have, you know, Sour Patch Kids, you know, that appeal, you know, things that appeal to children. Um, So I I think it's gotten out of control. Mm -hmm. As a consumer, I hope it stays around. Let's be clear. The industry, the cannabis industry wants this to go away. So um, obviously the cannabis industry has not been very effective at lobbying on the federal level at all. But uh, I think there's a very strong argument for why they could finally close this loophole. And if that happens, you know, there was a, a report that there's been about $1.5 billion of Delta 8 sales in the last two years. 
if I was to guess, I would say that's backloaded. Like, I think the run rate of Delta eight right now is quite high. I think you could mm-hmm. be talking, you know, one, one and a half, maybe even $2 billion of sales. Um, and, and that's a, that's a gut feel, but it's very hard to track because a lot of these sales are happening online, you know, it's interstate. So it's very, very difficult to actually, uh, figure out how much of this stuff is happening, but mm-hmm. I think it's very, very significant. And I think that closing the loophole, if they do, would actually be a really big tailwind for the the legal cannabis industry, um, the THC you know industry, and places like Florida and Texas, um, and, and you know other states that that have no program could really see a renewed pressure on their representatives to um, to you know improve programs and open programs and go wreck. So I think that is a huge, huge potential catalyst. Um, that people are not really talking about yet. Yeah, and I mean, like, I also think it's a it's a big issue that a lot of people don't really talk about. Like, obviously, people know about Delta Eight, but you know, putting putting it to your point, um, if you go to Florida, the first thing you do is buy Delta Eight. Like, how much? You know, at, at what point do people look? Like, what at what point do lawmakers look and say, "Hey, listen, like, it's we we just got to have a rec program now. It's literally already there." Well, I would actually say it goes the opposite way, right? Where um, the people who pushes the lawmakers to go wreck? I mean, it's consumers, right? It's the yeah. people. Um, well, you know what? If you can get D8 and D9 and HHC and you can get 30 times as high as D9, uh, you know, do you need do you need legal cannabis, right? And and also the cost- well, The answer is no. Made. I mean, at, at that point, the answer is no, right? Well, everybody's different. And I would say that in general, when I have the option between the two, I typically go for- um, normal quote unquote cannabis, not, you know, hemp derived cannabis. Right. But uh, my point from the beginning was just, Hey, people aren't paying attention to this and they think it's kind of like, you know, gas station weed or something, but it's actually pretty good. Right. It's mm-hmm. actually, let's say 80% is good or it's a different experience. Weed light. Well, I, I think, um, I think also what you're seeing is that if you buy it online, for example, like people who are heavy users, the cost is a fraction of what you pay, right? Cause it's hemp derived. Like hemp is basically free. Right. I mean, the market is flooded with hemp. So because of that, um, uh, there has been a uh, there's a lot of price compression. Uh, Now, there's quality issues and stuff like that, too, that that come up. But uh, I'm only pointing that out to say that if that goes away and and it'll never go away, by the way, even if they close the loophole, people will just keep selling it online. They they don't care. Um, uh, But that, I think, would actually have a a pretty big impact on the industry. Mm -hmm. Okay, last thing. Uh, this was a bit of a bombshell. California interstate. So California, I think the AG in California wrote a letter to the feds and said, hey, we think it would be okay if cannabis was to move across state lines. You know, now, does that mean coming in? Does that mean going out? Probably both. And they said, we think it would not pose a major issue. Can you please opine on this? And if you remember something called the Cole Memo, it was basically a, a legal memo saying, hey, you know, essentially that we will not uh, prosecute companies breaking federal law if they abide with state law, right? So we've had all these discussions in the past about how will interstate commerce happen? Will it happen? You know, I, I think a lot of people typically think it will happen. I think it will happen. It's inevitable. But when will it happen, right? If it happens mm-hmm. 10 years from now, it's very different from from now, right? Um, so look, if if you you know, love Glasshouse, then you, this is great news. And you go, Hey, this interstate commerce is coming tomorrow. Right. Um, 
I, I don't have a great opinion on this. I think that it's just very likely that the feds do nothing, that they just ignore this memo and sort of go, eh, you know, it's easier to not respond to it because it's a messy situation. But it's a if it if there's a response, it is potentially a gigantic game changer. So it's a disruptor that's waiting in the wings. It would be unquestionably good for West Coast markets if they could start exporting their product. Um, it would probably require the, the multiple states to agree on it. And I don't see why in the world a New Jersey or New York would give up their their you know homegrown local jobs to uh, you know a place like California, which is flooded with cannabis. Mm-hmm. So, I you know I, it, it's interesting to see how it plays out. I think that uh, you know Glasshouse stock going up twenty percent is probably a bit misguided um, because nothing's happening anytime soon. Um, but again, we're in a frothier market, and and this is what I'm saying about all you need is some kind of positive narrative around your stock in this market to really get some juice going, right? And you're bouncing off a low base, so you know you can get these kind of violent upward moves, yeah. right? Um, but I just want to say that I don't see this anything happening on this anytime soon. I could be wrong. I don't have a strong opinion on it, but I will say that if this happens. It could end up being one of the final nails in the coffin uh, for MSO sentiment because MSOs in general are overbuilt on their footprints. Now, mm-hmm. the smart ones are probably going to start exploring like, hey, how do we pick up some kind of operation out West? Um, you know, it doesn't have to be a massive operation, but some kind of operation that ends up being our critical uh, cultivation point and, and ends up being where we source all of our, our cannabis from. Mm-hmm. Um, but also it means that when you're planning out your grows for a new state coming online, you are a lot more likely to build a smaller, more reasonable craft grow. Like I actually think the license cap on grows are going to matter a lot less than they did in the past because mm-hmm. people aren't going to have the money or the appetite, um, to build out a, uh, you know, a hundred thousand foot canopy grow when, Hey, in two years, there might be some disruption around interstate. Right. Or, hey, if I know that in the past couple of years, every time um, everyone's built out all this canopy after three or four years, the prices plummet and I have to shut down half the facility. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So uh, huge disruptor, probably low percent chance that it actually comes through anytime soon. But um, if it does, watch out. Who do you like, even if they do allow interstate, like who do you think, you know, what, what states are going to import? Remember you and I, we've had this conversation before and, and, mm-hmm. and, and you raised actually a really good point because I was, I was under the belief this was back then being like, yeah, like when interstate commerce happens, you know, California is going to sell and you, you raised a good point. You're like, look, you know, these government officials, these governors, or these government officials allowed by uh, cannabis, a lot of CapEx spending happened and there was a lot of money that flew like flowed in. They built out all these infrastructures. Do you really think that they're just going to allow, you know, competition to kind of come in, right? Or do you well, think they're going to outside product come in? Yeah, there's two parts to this, right? There's a dormant, mm-hmm. the dormant commerce clause, uh, which has been used to strike down residency requirements, which basically just says you can't discriminate between states, right? Mm-hmm. So um, you can't say, hey, I want, uh, I only want Illinois wine sold in Illinois. I don't want California wine sold here. Okay, right. So um, that's been a well tried and tested and, and true thing. Now, does that apply? to a federally illegal industry, right? That's the big question. So, so far, that's how everyone has has done it. 
Um, so the the, th- the thinking goes that let's say, um, you know, the, the Fed say, hey, California, you're good. Open up your borders, do what you want, right? Well, then California goes, um, hey, Illinois, we want to ship to your market. And Illinois goes, yeah, I don't think so. Um, so then California, again, just in theory, or a grower in California could go ahead and sue the government of Illinois and say, hey, they are violating the dormant, dormant commerce clause um, because they're not letting me import. Right. So they're unfairly protecting their market. Right. Gotcha. So, again, all this stuff takes years and years and years. Who knows where this stuff ends up? Right. Um, but I think inevitably there will be a interstate fully legal market. And by the way, that market's already here. It's called Delta eight. Right. <laughs> it's moving across all yeah. borders It's centralized production. Um, now, just to, as we're closing out here, the funny thing about that is. Back in mid-2001, when I had this big revelation about Delta-8, one of the products I actually purchased um, was made by a public company. And I was like, oh my God, there's a public OTC-listed Delta-8 company. Um, and I think it's called like Lifted Partners or something. Mm-hmm. And this company is quietly killing it, like quietly making real cash flow, doing all these huge acquisitions, all this kind of stuff. It's been almost, I mean, it's been a year and a half since I looked into them. The stock price has done basically nothing. Um, they've actually performed pretty well. Like they're actually doing some interesting stuff. But uh, the problem I would say is twofold, right? One, they have this huge regulatory overhang. Like what if somebody comes along and, uh, oh, it's funny I say that. Now when I look back at the last 30 days, you know, the stock exploded in late January, <laughs> like like everything else, right? <laughs> yeah. But um, the ticker's LIFD, but but the the thing is, there's this huge regulatory overhang of like, hey, if they change this, if they ban D8 in some states or the, the farm bill changes it, what happens to these guys, right? Um, and when I saw that they got into Delta 9 THC and all this stuff, I said, this is this is getting a little too cute for me and I, I don't want to own this anymore. So I just kind of stepped away from it. But um, there is interstate happening and you can sort of see what's happening um, with Delta 8. I, I would even venture a guess that if they don't regulate it, there's a chance you could see other cannabis companies get more into it. And by the way, uh, Can, the drink, has actually done that. So Can is now available in Minnesota and Texas and Florida through uh, you know, getting like Delta 8 or Delta 9 hemp-derived THC in their in their beverages. So that's pretty crazy. Yeah. Super <laughs> interesting, right? You have a suddenly a a cannabis brand that's you know can actually market itself in these other states. Yeah. So yeah. So we'll see we'll see how that plays out. Last thing that you just brought up that you reminded me of is we're going to see some more back and forth and butting heads on enforcement of legal programs. So California's kind of one end of the spectrum. New York's another end of the spectrum. People have rightfully so made a lot of fun of New York for the fact that you have hey one legal dispensary open. 1,400 illicit dispensaries open, right? I think you're going to start to see a crackdown on these illicit dispensaries. Now, what does that actually mean? This is where the push and pull comes in. There's not a lot of appetite or there's not the stomach to be seen to lock up, especially minorities, for selling cannabis, even if they're doing it in a store, um, you know, that they don't, they're unlicensed for, which is interesting because if you think about like any other person having a store, like an al- a, you know, a liquor store that's unlicensed, I mean, that would be shut down in 10 seconds, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so cannabis, re- now cannabis is not as harmful, nearly as harmful as liquor. So that's, that's the difference, right? 
Um, and it doesn't have all this, you know, racist past of, of police enforcement and all this stuff. So I think you're going to see kind of this start and stop where there's some enforcement, but they stop short of, you know, really throwing the book at people, right? They shut down the stores. It's a cat and mouse game. They go after the landlords. They go after the mortgage holders. They do administrative penalties. Make um, some headlines. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Try to dissuade people from doing it. But I don't think they're going to be um, throwing people in jail. And if they are, then I think you'll see people turn around to like the Office of Cannabis Management and say, this is your fault. What are you guys doing? And then right. and that group of people does not have the stomach to play that game. So that's why I think you're going to see a mix. I think you're going to see some enforcement, some back and forth. Um, and that's going to be a really interesting dynamic that plays out over 2023. But the the crux of it all is that the you cannot have a successful social equity program um, without having license caps and enforcement. It, it's just not going to happen. And that's a reality they have to live with. Where they might thread the needle in New York is just saying, okay, look, because of 280E and because of the illicit market, you know, you're, you just can't make any money. It's okay. We'll just give you government loans, which are essentially grants. So instead of enforcing to keep you know, to, to um, keep the market strong and, and make it possible to have a, um, a viable business, we'll just solve the problem through giving you government money. But the, that private public fund they had, I mean, I just yeah. don't see how private oper- you know, private investors are ever going to see a way to make money um, in a, a market that is so obviously going to lose to the illicit market. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, like, look, they do have to do something, but and I agree with you. I think they're going to make make a big splash, but uh, there's like what can they actually really do, right? Like we've seen it happen in California. Like the the black market. I, I mean, they can do a lot if they want to. Exactly. The question the question is exactly. in today's world, do they have the stomach to do it? And I, I honestly don't know the answer. I think yeah. I think I think it's a, it's a bit of a mixed bag. So we'll see. We'll see. It's it's not so obviously clear to me, and that's why it is one of the things to watch. <laughs> for 2023 okay this has been a great catch-up episode those are five things to keep an eye on and a lot of other small things to keep an eye on curious to hear your thoughts and your questions cinpodcast at gmail.com until next time this podcast is a general communication and entertainment being provided for informational purposes only It is educational in nature and not designed to be a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan, feature, or other purposes. Any examples used in this podcast are generic, hypothetical, and for entertainment purposes only. None of Cannabis Investing Network or its affiliates are suggesting that the listener or any other person take a specific course of action or any action at all. Communications such as this are not impartial and are provided in connection with advertising and marketing of products and services. Prior to making any investment or financial decisions, an investor should seek individualized advice from from a personal financial, legal, tax, and other professional advisor that take into account all of the particular facts and circumstances for an investor's own situation. By listening to this communication, you agree with the intended purpose described earlier. Opinions and statements of financial market trends that are based on current market conditions constitute our judgment and are subject to change without notice. We believe the information provided here is reliable but should not be assumed to be accurate or complete. The views and strategies described may not be suitable for all investors.